Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. According to TechCrunch, before its ignominious flameout, the cryptocurrency firm FTX had acquired more than 100,000 customers in Africa. Evidently, FTX, led by wonderkind-turned-object lesson, with not much actual learning and evidence in between, Sam Bankman-Fried, built a following, in part by capitalizing on unstable banking access on the continent. Media like the New York Times and Bloomberg abetted Bankman-Fried's scheming with rose-colored stories describing him as a kind of Robin Hood whose ethical framework called for, quote, decisions calculated to secure the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, close quote. Well, the golden boy has now filed for bankruptcy, having disappeared some billion dollars in client funds. Ho-hum. And don't look for FTX postmortems to go deep on why sub-Saharan Africa was specially targeted or to plumb the implications of Bankman-Fried's comments made to Vox in 2021 that Africa, quote, that's where the most underserved globally are and where there's a whole lot of lowest hanging fruit in terms of being able to make people's lives better, close quote. How did that work out? The African continent as a playing field for white people to test their theories, extract resources, and stage proxy wars is time-tested. As much fable as active framework, it's a lens that requires constant challenge. We talked about this last fall with Milton Alamadi. He teaches African history at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and publishes the Black Star News, a weekly newspaper in New York City. And he's the author of the book Manufacturing Hate, How Africa Was Demonized in Western Media. We'll hear some of that conversation with Milton Alamadi this week on Counterspin. But first, a quick look back at some recent press. The tire fire that Elon Musk seems to be making out of his new toy, Twitter, is leading some to call for an overdue society-wide jettisoning of the whole, if he's a billionaire, that means he's a genius myth. Here's a hope that that critical lens will extend not just to Elon, don't make me mad or I won't fly you to Mars, Musk, but also to, can we say, Bill Gates, who, while he doesn't talk about other planets, has some pretty grandiose ideas about this one. Fifty organizations organized by Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa and Community Alliance for Global Justice have issued an open letter to Gates in response to two high-profile media stories. An AP piece headed, Bill Gates, Technological Innovation Would Help Solve Hunger, and a Q&A in the New York Times by David Wallace-Wells that opened with the question of the very definition of progress. Quote, are things getting better? Fast enough? For whom? Close quote. And then asserting that, quote, those questions are, in a somewhat singular way, tied symbolically to Bill Gates. Close quote. Well, in their letter, these global groups focused on food sovereignty and justice take non-symbolic issue, 
with Gates' premises and those of the outlets megaphoning him and his deep world-saving thoughts. First and last, Gates acknowledges that the world makes enough food to feed everyone, but then goes on to suggest that responses to hunger should be based on low productivity rather than equitable access. He stresses fertilizer, which the groups note make farmers and importing nations dependent on volatile international markets and contribute to greenhouse gas emissions, while multiple groups in Africa are already developing biofertilizers with neither of those issues. Gates tells Times readers, quote, The Green Revolution was one of the greatest things that ever happened. Then we lost track, close quote. Well, these on-the-ground groups beg to differ. Those changes did increase some crop yields in some places, but numbers of hungry people didn't markedly go down or access to food markedly increase while a number of new problems were introduced. AP said the quiet part loud with a lead that tells us that Gates believes that, quote, the global hunger crisis is so immense that food aid cannot fully address the problem. What's also needed, Gates argues, are the kinds of innovations in farming technology that he has long funded, close quote. Presumably, Squillionaire says what he does is good, by gosh, was deemed a bit too overt. But AP does want us to know about the breakthrough that Gates calls magic seeds, i.e. those bioengineered to resist climate change. Climate-resistant seeds, these letter writers note, are already being developed by African farmers and traded in informal seed markets. Gates even points a finger at overinvestments in maize and rice, as opposed to locally adapted cereals like sorghum, except that his foundation has itself reportedly focused on maize and rice and restricted crop innovation. Finally, the groups address Gates's obnoxious dismissal of critics of his approach as singing kumbaya. Yeah. Quote, if there's some non-innovation solution, you know, like singing kumbaya, I'll put money behind it. But if you don't have those seeds, the numbers just don't work, close quote, our putative boy hero says, adding preemptively, quote, if somebody says we're ignoring some solution, I don't think they're looking at what we're doing, close quote. Well, the open letter notes respectfully that there are many tangible, ongoing proposals and projects that work to boost productivity and food security. That it is Gates' preferred high-tech solutions, including genetic engineering, new breeding technologies, and now digital agriculture, that have in fact consistently failed to reduce hunger or increase food access as promised, and that in some cases they actually contribute to the biophysical processes driving the problem. And they add that Africa, despite having the lowest costs of labor and land, being a net exporter, is not, as Gates describes it, a tragedy, but in fact a predictable and predicted result of the fact that costs of land and labor are socially and politically produced. Quote, Africa is in fact highly productive. It's just that the profits are realized elsewhere, close quote. 
At the end of AP's piece, the outlet does the thing elite media do, where they fake rhetorical balance in order to tell you what to think. Quote, Through his giving, investments, and public speaking, Gates has held the spotlight in recent years, especially on the topics of vaccines and climate change. But he has also been the subject of conspiracy theories that play off his role as a developer of new technologies and his place among the highest echelons of the wealthy and powerful, close quote. The word but makes it sound like it's a fight between holding a spotlight because you're wealthy and powerful, or else being subject to inherently ignorant critical conjecture because you're wealthy and powerful. But perhaps we shouldn't expect much actual serious debate from a press corps that makes space to print such pearls of wisdom as, quote, in health in general, we're kind of in a learning cycle, close quote. And, quote, on Asia, I'm optimistic, But then we're faced with the mind-blowing challenge of Africa, where population growth is still there, close quote. While they persistently ignore the repeated, stated concerns of the real people hidden in those abstractions. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. Benighted, backward, tribal, and corrupt. Listeners will be familiar with the imagery that corporate media have long used to talk about Africa and Africans, not just tabloids that blare their racism in crude cartoons, but also very much elite media, like the New York Times, which argued not in 1893, but in 1993, that, quote, The civilized world has a mission to go out to these desperate places and govern, close quote, in a piece that was headlined, Colonialism's Back and Not a Moment Too Soon. Last fall, Counterspin talked about a book that illustrates the point that dehumanizing media coverage of African nations and African people has never been accidental or incidental but part of efforts to justify violent colonization and resource theft and to rationalize continued exploitation of black people and the institutionalized racism intertwined with it. The author of the book, Manufacturing Hate, How Africa Was Demonized in Western Media, from Kendall Hunt Publishers, is Milton Alamadi. He teaches African history at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and he publishes the Black Star News, a weekly newspaper here in New York City. Alamadi started by talking about the pre-colonial era, where the so-called explorers started to go to African countries from Europe, pretending to discover the source of the Nile or some such but actually as agents of colonialism, looking to map Africa's territorial zones and find resource locations. Dehumanizing, demonizing media coverage was part of the job of conditioning the minds of those back in Europe to accept the brutality that would be necessary in order to take control of the African continent. But then Alamadi brought us forward to present-day conflict. But now let's come to the contemporary era. When we see the coverage of the conflict in the Congo, Eastern Congo in particular, mineral-rich Eastern Congo, it's always portrayed, even in the New York Times, 
as quote-unquote tribal wars, when in fact it is a war by design by corporate interests. Western companies, United States, Canadian, British, and other European companies are benefiting from that war. Now, they don't fight it directly with European or American soldiers, but they use their puppet regimes in Uganda and Rwanda, who are armed by the U.S. and other Western countries, and the invasion of Ugandan and Rwandan soldiers are tolerated by the West. And why is this? Because at the same time that all these Congolese are being killed, these Western mining corporations are actually mining minerals from Eastern Congo. So the general reader would not know any of this because in their mind, this is just another one of those typical, quote unquote, African tribal wars. Well, you do focus in the book on the New York Times to some extent, which makes sense. It's an influential voice. Yeah. And, and also the importance of an editor. Uh, Emanuel Friedman was the New York Times foreign news editor during a very important period. And you say he never took Africa seriously, and the reporting reflected that. Yes, he never took Africa seriously, and unfortunately, he was there for a very long time as the foreign news editor at very critical times in the history of the evolution in Africa. He was there when the apartheid system in South Africa was being consolidated. This very barbaric system of racist segregation in all spheres and all aspects of life, whether economic, whether educational, whether social. And this is a critical time. If the New York Times, for example, had chosen to take a much more objective approach rather than embracing and actually providing, I would also say almost like PR Mm -hmm. for the apartheid system, things might have turned out a bit different in South Africa. But always you can also interpret it this way, because at that time, of course, the U.S. also had its own domestic issues, particularly uh, in the South, for example. So the New York Times basically took an approach and accepted the argument by the European minority that was governing South Africa that Africans are not really used to our system of civilization, and that's why we need an apartheid system, separateness. And, of course, they never explained why the Europeans had to take the lion's share of the resources and why it could not be the other way around. And we find Emmanuel Friedman, rather than looking at the seriousness of the apartheid system was focusing on trivial stories that would caricature Africans and show them as essentially people that are uncivilized. So, for example, he would send memos to New York Times correspondents in Africa and ask them things like, oh, we hear that in Africa, where the concept of the wheel was not known until recently. Bicycles are now proliferating. Could you do us a piece on that? And they were saying, do they have bicycle garages? Do they ride naked on the bicycles? What impact is it having? And then the second major story that was going on in Africa, of course, was decolonization. So in the late 1950s, the New York Times sent Homer Bigart, who by that time was well-known in American journalism. He'd won the Pulitzer Prize twice before he joined the Times, actually when he was with the Herald Tribune. So he was sent to cover how independence was faring in Ghana, which, of course, was the first 
an African country south of the Sahara to win its independence from Britain in 1957. And then from there, he was to go to other African countries that were about to win their independence and then file his reports. So when he gets to Accra in Ghana, he writes this letter, and now I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, to Emmanuel Friedman. And he's confessing that I really cannot get enthusiastic about the so-called emerging republics. The leaders are either crooks or mystics. And he says that Nkrumah, who of course was this great Pan-African hero and first prime minister of Ghana, like Henry Wallace in Burnt Cork, he says, I pretty much prefer the primitive Bush people because cannibalism, after all, is the best antidote for the population explosion that everybody's complaining about. How did I find this? I found this actually when I did the research and I went to the archives of the New York Times many years ago when I was still a graduate student at Columbia. And when I came upon this memo, I knew the extent of the racism, but even this was still a bit shocking. And then I said to myself, maybe this was one individual deranged reporter. But then I went and I saw the articles published under his byline around that time. And uh, all the language in the articles reflected uh, the language in his personal correspondence with Friedman as well. Terms like savages, uh, cannibals, uh, macabre, uh, those are the kind of words he used in his news stories. But then there was also a lot of distortion and even fabrication. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when he left Ghana, he went to the Belgian Congo. It was called the Belgian Congo at that time, about to get its independence. And he wrote another memo to Emmanuel Friedman, and he said he had been hoping to find pygmies. And by the way, pygmies are one of the most maligned people in all of the Western writing about Africa, the pygmies. So he said he wanted to find pygmies to interview them as to what independence meant to them. But he could not find them. They were all in the woods, for example, he said. But then when his article appears in the New York Times, now he's saying to pygmies, independence means they can now have more meat. They can now have more beer. They can now have more, more salt. And of course, it's, it's so sad because the Belgian Congo experienced perhaps the most horrific history of European colonialism in Africa under Bubonic King Leopold II. Yes. He is estimated to have exterminated as many during his regime, up to 10 million Congolese. And this was a moment where the Times could have taken a serious look and perhaps interviewed some of maybe elderly survivors of that genocidal era or at least the descendants of those who suffered under Leopold. But instead, this was the kind of story demonizing the pygmies that Bigart and Friedman were focusing on. So it was beyond just inheriting the template from the so-called explorers. It was adopting it and even exceeding it in maliciously distorting the image of Africa. and. When the reporting did not really conform with this image, they sometimes took matters into their own hands. So I found a letter written by a Times correspondent in the 1960s, I believe it was 66. And this was Lloyd Garrison, a descendant of the famous abolitionist, William Garrison. And he was complaining about the edited and final version of his article that he read, he found that the editors had inserted a a scene describing Nigerians 
uh, dressed in grass leaves. This is something that Garrison did not himself write. Mm -hmm. And he was shocked when he saw it in the final version of his article. And to his credit, he was one of those who took this seriously and complained about it and said he had found this type of reference to tribesmen in his other articles in the press, and he strongly objected to that. Well, finally, Milton, you have been working on these ideas for some time now. And for some time, people have been saying, this is all very interesting, but I wanted to ask you to talk a little about your efforts to get this information about media into media. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is a story in itself. (laughs) And it's been a great learning experience, actually, to me. And it really lets you look back at the whole concept of objectivity in journalism, which is something they hammer in all the journalism schools, at least when I went to Columbia Journalism Mm -hmm. in 92. Because this research that has now ended up in this book started off as a master's paper at Columbia for the master's degree in journalism. And I said, this is a really a golden opportunity because the demonization of Africa was something that had bothered me for a very long time, even when I was a teenager, 13-year-old, you know, 12-year-old, actually. So now I have a chance to actually write something serious that can contribute to the literature which is missing. So when I did the research, the paper was actually recognized, at least by my peers and by the faculty. It was awarded the James Wechsler Award. And then Columbia Journalism Review invited me to submit it for publication. And of course, I thought that was very good. This might actually help me start putting it into a potential book form eventually. Mm-hmm. I keep waiting for it to be published. Like one issue came out, the second issue came out, and now I'm about to graduate. And obviously, I would have preferred for it to be published before I graduate. So then I contact the review. And I spoke to the editor at the time, Michael Hoyt. And I asked when my paper was going to be published, my article. And then he tells me, oh, there's been a decision made not to publish it. And I was very shocked. I said, well, when were you going to tell me this? And there's no response. And then I say, well, what was the problem? You invited me. You seemed very enthusiastic. You know, what, what, was, what happened? He says, ultimately, two editors supported publication, two opposed and the executive editor at that time, Suzanne Levine, opposed publishing. And I said, what was the problem or the objection? It says, there was some thought that these things happened a long time ago. And then I said to myself, how are you going to write a history and a critique without going back into the history? <laughs> so I was very perplexed. And then even more confusing was when I asked to have my paper back. He actually asked me, he said, why do you want it back? which anyone, of course, would find very shocking if yeah. an editor asks you why you want your paper back, yeah. especially after they say they're not going to publish it. Exactly. Actually, he added on to that. He said, why do you want it back? After all, it's not the same as what you gave us. <laughs> and that, that really lit up something in my mind. I said, in that case, that's precisely why I want it back. <laughs> and I went quickly to the reviews office, which was, in, of course, in the same building as Columbia Journalism School. I don't know if it still is. And something else shocking happened when I walked in. 
he didn't expect me to come in that quickly. So he was standing behind a pile of papers and he was sort of shoving something beneath the pile. And then he sees me in shock and I wasn't in the mood for nice teas. I said, I just want my paper back. And then he starts going to different locations and drawers searching for uh, this paper. And then he comes back to the same spot where I'd found him standing and he pulls the paper out from beneath the file. And now I'm really shaking my head. I'm saying this is something very strange here. Yeah. You know, I take my paper and I leave. And before I even got in the elevator, I started reading the paper. And sure enough, the review editors had actually inserted an apology on my behalf at the very beginning of the paper. I can read it verbatim very quickly. Please. Recently, the Times granted me access to its archive, including correspondences from the 1950s when the paper sent Big Art to Africa on a temporary assignment. After studying the archival material, I interviewed several present and former Times reporters. The following excerpts from the material and from lengthy interviews are not intended as an indictment of the Times, whose African coverage has occasionally been distinguished, but as a means of highlighting a problem that all news organizations need to address. Wow. So even after this insertion, they still decided uh, not to publish it. So I could only read that one way, that this is coming out of a fear of how the New York Times might react to this. So I did them a favor and I sent it to the publisher of the Times at that time, I believe it was Arthur Ox Salzberger. And to his credit, Joseph Lederville actually did write to me. And he said, yes, he acknowledged the crude language in their past coverage that my research had discovered. And then he also added that he uh, did say things have changed since then because he himself was a part of pushing for that change. In his case, I, I do agree. But there's still a lot that needs to be done. Is there anything else you would like to add for listeners who, who might be intrigued by this set of ideas? I hope that people do get a chance to read this book because I think until we understand how Africa, Africans, and descendants of Africans, including in this country, were really uh, made into the other, we will not understand what needs to be done going forward, including for domestic issues of racism right here in the United States. We've been speaking with Milton Alamadi. Manufacturing Hate, How Africa Was Demonized in Western Media is out now from Kendall Hunt. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin, Milton Alamadi. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Milton Alamadi speaking with Counterspin in fall of last year. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to learn about our newsletter extra and to show support, particularly at this time of year if you are so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.